Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. A returning guest that's uh, becoming one of my favorites. His name is Joe Bhakti. He's the head of a company called Quant Gene, Q-U-A-N-T Gene. Uh, we talked about cancer and the new therapies they're working on to uh, help with uh, liquid biopsies to identify cancer faster and better and more completely. Um, they're also in the COVID testing arena. And this is important because, uh, again, Quant Gene and Joe, they seem to have... Um, I don't know, they approach problems in a really unique way that they get them solved, I think, in a better way. So I want to talk to them about COVID testing. So Joe, welcome back. Thanks. How are you doing? Hi, Richard. I'm great. Thanks a lot for having me on. Well, good. So why, um, it, it seems like, you know, a lot of companies and initiatives are researching COVID, uh, trying to do testing for COVID, et cetera. Why did you throw your hat in the ring and decide to do it too? So at Quantin, we are all about what we call real-time medical intelligence. And the idea behind that is medicine is mostly a data problem. Uh, if you knew everything, there wouldn't be any problems, especially if you knew things before they become a problem. That's how we started in cancer. We became very strong there on the AI and data side, but also on generating this data with molecular diagnostics. And in COVID, what we saw um, is that there is, in a, in a weird way, it was a similar problem. Um, it was about real-time medical intelligence. The entire testing crisis in COVID um, is basically a real-time um, intelligence problem. You're testing, but the results come in too late. Um, and in a pandemic, in an infectious disease, in a viral uh, disease, um, time is of the essence because viruses, um, you know, they replicate exponentially within your body, but also a pandemic spreads exponentially when it's not being intercepted. And... Um, so if you take a step back and think about COVID, what is the actual problem here? The problem is that you have to intercept that spread inside your body um, through medication and doing certain things, but also within a population. And the only way to do that is early detection. So it's literally right down uh, um, our alley, what we do in cancer. We lead the world in early detection technologies uh, in cancer. And the way we achieved that in cancer was mostly... There's a lot of chemistry involved and a lot of sequencing tech, but it was mostly through um, cloud systems, right? Software, AI, but also just good, um, good old cloud systems that connect large data sets and, and make them all work. And so when we, see the, when we saw the COVID problem, what we realized is it is not a molecular diagnostics problem. We have PCR testing COVID that are nearly 100% accurate, 99.999% actually, uh, the Attila and some others. Um, the problem was that people don't get their test results back in time. So you, you probably saw all these scandals about LabCorp and Quest. They totally failed. Um, Quest just got fired by Florida government because they, they didn't get uh, 75,000 results back from, I think, May or something. <laughs> so, so people got tested in May and they still didn't get their results back. 
I'm not sure. Well, I, I made, heard but... uh, it wasn't just the timing, but uh, it seemed like the tests themselves, depending on which kind, were two to twenty nine percent inaccurate. So that's that's on top of everything exactly. So and that's not yeah. a problem of the test. That's a problem of the test handling of of lab directors not having oversight. They are basically yeah. completely overwhelmed by this whole thing. And um, so what what we saw is just a is a dire need in America for a real time rapid PCR based testing. And because of these delays, right, we now see all these phony initiatives from Abbott and some other companies that start doing these antigen and also antibody tests, which don't make any sense, right? Th these tests are bad. Um, they have a terrible sensitivity. Um, they have false positives. So if you use tests that are just not reliable, that is not something that works. And well, let, let's get into some of the science first. Um, what is sensitivity versus specificity? And then I want to ask you about PCR itself, how it works. Yeah. So you have basically three different types of tests. You have antibody tests, you have antigen tests, and you have PCR tests, um, just to start there. Um, the antibody tests, they check your immune system reaction to the virus or to whatever, but something that might look like the virus. So it basically investigates if you had COVID in the past um, and if you have immune, if you have antibodies built against that virus, which would indicate that you had it. Um, that doesn't tell you if you have it right now because there's a delayed immune reaction. So it's a bad test to check if you actually have it. It's a good test to, to tell you if you might have it, had it in the past. The antigen test tests for the mole molecules, for the uh, proteins that actually are used by the immune system to build the antibodies. Um, and so these are uh, proteins expressed by cells on the surface that are infected by the virus. Um, so it tests directly for the virus, but not on a genomic basis, but on a protein basis. Um, and the problem with that is you cannot amplify proteins. So you can only look at what is actually in the sample. You know, if you have a million, if you have a thousand viruses in the sample, a thousand virus proteins in the sample, that's all you can see, which you well, cannot there, see. You're also looking at, uh, I guess you have to do blood. If the virus, for instance, targets uh, alveolar cells, epithelial cells, you're not going to use that as, a, as your sample. You couldn't even get to it probably. And then, exactly. You know, so, yeah, okay. Exactly. You, 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 yeah, I mean, then the next question is, how do you even get, what do you take? What kind of sample do you take? And um, exactly, you could have it in the blood, but then you take a nose swab and maybe you don't find it there. It's not enough in there. And, and then finally, you have PCR tests, which are by far the most accurate. They test for the virus RNA for the genomic um, material. And the big advantage why they are so accurate is that in a PCR reaction, you can amplify the RNA. Uh, and you can amplify it by billions of times, like two billion times. Um, so you, if you have one molecule in there, you will amplify it to two billion, and then it makes it very visible. That is why PCR is literally like billions of times, you know, uh, more accurate in terms of picking up individual molecules. Um, now, the problem with PCR tests is they require a little bit more involvement because you have to run PCR machines. And so you need laboratory technicians. So in other words, you would need a lab to do it, whereas an antigen test, you can put on a little stripe and do it in five minutes on the spot. Um, but that, of course, also leads to the point where you have, you know, a bad sensitivity. To, so you, to your question, in diagnostics, you always have these two important metrics. One is sensitivity and one is specificity. Sensitivity means if you have 100 COVID patients 
well, it can mean different things, but that's that clinical sensitivity means if you have 100 patients with COVID infected and you do the test, how many of these hundreds will you find? If you find 80, you have 80% sensitivity because you missed 20. Um, if you have, when you look at specificity, it's the other way around. If you have 100 non-infected patients, how many does the test mark as non-infected and how many as wrongly as infected? Uh, so if you have 100 healthy people or non-infected, if the test says, well, five have COVID, 95 don't have COVID, then you have a 95% specificity because you're right 95% of the time, but you said five people have COVID who don't have it. And so the if you have- Sensitivity is, is both how many false negatives and how many false positives you'd get using the test on a population. A specificity tells you the false positives and sensitivity the false negatives. Okay, okay, got it. That's and it's, it's, it's actually a very important metric. It sounds geeky, but it's important because if you look at only one of the metrics, I can invent a test for anything that is 100% sensitive if you don't look at specificity. It takes me one minute, right? Because you just give me people, I say everyone has cancer. Then I'm always right for everyone who has cancer, but I'm always wrong on everyone who doesn't have cancer, but I have 100% sensitivity. So that's, you know- so There's a trade-off between these two when you're designing tests. Right. You need both to be as high as possible. That tells you if a test is actually accurate. There is, of course, you know, it always sounds much easier than it is. When you look in the details, it becomes very difficult. Um, for example, there's clinical sensitivity and specificity, but then there's also technical sensitivity and specificity. Clinical means if you have COVID, if you're infected with COVID, do I find that or not? Technical means if I spike uh, the COVID virus, or whatever you're looking for into the sample, do I find it or not? So the technical sensitivity tells you if you artificially create a sample that contains that stuff, do you find that stuff? That is, whereas the clinical sensitivity says if you, if you have the virus, does, does the test find the virus? That is a very important distinction because if you have the virus, it does not mean that the sample contains the virus. Therefore, clinical sensitivity is much harder to achieve than technical sensitivity. And I guess the way you establish whether your test will work is you have to go with technical sensitivity because by definition, you just can't know for sure that you're going to have the virus in your sample in a clinical setting. Exactly. You have many problems. So what the antigen tests, for example, do, I, did, I just give you the Abbott example. Abbott came out and says, our new test, the five-minute $10 test, uh, just came out yesterday or has a 97% sensitivity, right? Which sounds pretty good. And of course it cannot be true. So I, I saw it's like, okay, this is clearly not true. So then you look into like, okay, why, what did their PR department, why did they decide they can say that? And you look into the study. So what they did is they did a head-to-head -head comparison with a PCR test, right? So they said, okay, we test people who are positive on the PCR test and then give them that Abbott test too. Um, so of course you have many questions that, you know, you get right away. So who are these people who are positive on a PCR test and when did you give them the Abbott test? For example, if you take a PCR test and you're positive and Abbott does that, Abbott probably needs two days or three days to figure that out because they're not as fast as quantine. So you do a test, you wait three days and you say, oh, you have positive. Let's do the Abbott test. That means you have three days for the virus to exponentially replicate. Right. So in that, I'm not saying they did that, but I'm saying, I don't know exactly how they did. They didn't describe that. But if that is the method to first test a bunch of people 
then pull out the positives and test them with the UP test. That's already not a fair head-to-head -head comparison because you're testing, you know, a hundred times higher viral load potentially because it's not the same point in time. Um, gotcha. The second thing is they only tested uh, symptomatic patients and they disclosed it. They said like, yeah, it's a head-to-head -head comparison with PCR on symptomatic patients. Okay, so that means they're all later stage. Uh, that excludes everyone who's not symptomatic, which is 35% of all COVID cases. Um, and these are all little tricks where you make your test look pretty good. 97% sounds amazing. But you always have to ask a simple question in diagnostics. If you cut out all that stuff, can you guarantee me with your 97% if I give you 100 people who are infected with COVID, you would find 97 of them? And then, of course, they would always say, well, it's not that simple, blah, blah, blah. And you know, just my gut feeling on that number, on the 97% sensitivity, I think that translates with that study design and what they actually did. You were talking about 10, 15% of people you actually find. So that's a well, pretty not big only that, if, you, if you're going to do, let's say, tens of millions of tests, now that lost 3% sensitivity translates to how many, you know, uh, false positives, right? A lot. Yeah, but it's also, it is also not 3%. It's more like 80%. I'm pretty sure about that. Well, even if it was, though, when you get to large numbers, you know, every percent can make a huge difference in the number of people, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Even if it would be 97, and I can guarantee you it is not 97% in real life. It is something much, much, much lower. Um, yeah, just for listeners, if, you know, 1% of 10 million is 100,000, so it's still a lot. Exactly. So if you, test 10, if you would test 10 million people who have COVID, you would tell 100,000 to go out in the population and that they are totally fine when they totally have COVID. So that's already not great. Um, but I guarantee you, if they test 10 million COVID people, they will miss 50, uh, they will miss 5 million. Okay. And they're yeah, also not, I mean, and, and the funny thing is, you know, their stock goes up like crazy. I think the, some government person, I think White House or someone in the administration bought $750 million worth of this test. There's not a single medical professional I talk to or even uh, uh, anyone in a company who is uh, in charge of sourcing these things that, that takes that in any way seriously. So I'm not like an extreme case of criticism. Everyone says, yeah, of course, we're not buying these things. We understand antigen tests. Oh, and the antigen tests, not PCR. Got it. Okay. So um, back to PCR, uh, are, you, are you looking at the entire sequence of SARS-CoV-2? Are you looking at just a, a conserved region of it when you do the PCR testing? Like, How does it work? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. No, the PCR testing looks only at two regions in most cases um, <clears throat> um, of the virus. So the virus is a very specific RNA, so you don't need to look at the whole thing. You just need to see is there any piece of the virus RNA in there that is unique to COVID-19. Um, and um, that's basically it. So it's a pretty straightforward test. What we saw at QuantGene is that the test is not the problem. They exist, they are highly accurate, and we did not have to invent the chemistry. Um, we had to organize the sourcing, but then the most important thing is we had to apply a cloud system that connects these machines to the cloud and has an automated reporting system, which cuts out all these uh, you know, very old school laboratory processes. And that, was, that gave us the edge why we are now America's fastest PCR turnaround uh, on COVID. Um, we can do same-day turnaround. Um, and it's all about cloud systems and optimizing that workflow. 
it's not about the chemistry. The chemistry was already basically perfect. Well, why would it take uh, you know two days, five days, seven days for other people? What? Why would it take so long if the chemistry works? Um, you know, what would take so long? Well, um, you know, we had to learn this the hard way when we started, and I actually went to the lab. Imagine you're a lab, right? A lab just means there is a guy uh, who sits on a desk uh, in front of a PCR machine with a pipette, and he gets two samples in, and he puts a little buffer on these samples and pipettes it back and up, up and back, uh, and then puts it onto an Eppendorf plate, runs it for 50 minutes, and then gets the results. Okay. Um, and there's a courier that drops off these samples. Um, so you get two samples in, you do it, it's all fine. You have the results after, you know, three hours. Um, and then you write down these results, you look at it and say, okay, this was, uh, this was Richard, this was Joe, both are not detected. You type it into your system, you print it out, and you send them an email, right? No problem. Um, that's how labs actually work. Um, now, what happens if you drop 20 of these samples? Okay, then you have to do this 20 times. What if you drop 20,000 of these samples? You will literally scale the time in a linear way if you do it this way. If, so as long as you have any manual labor involved in the reporting or accession of these samples, you are completely screwed if you scale from one sample to 10,000. Mm, and, and so it's, it's literally the dumbest problem. <laughs> it was a problem that they, you know, the labs literally had, they had one full-time administrator who dealt with their samples. And normally they can do 10 samples a day. If they do 20 samples, they need another administrator. If, if they need 10,000 samples, they need to hire 1,000 administrators. And that is exactly what happened at LabCorp and Quest. And of course, they didn't hire 1,000. They just said, oh, you have to wait uh, five months. So and what so about the, the, um, the, the array itself that you put the samples in? I mean, what about the machines? I would think there'd be bottlenecks. You know, no one would have, let's say, enough, you know, arrays, microarrays to put all these samples in. No one would have enough machines to run it in parallel. What about that part of it? It's all part of the problem. And it's the problem where everyone focuses on. But when you do a, you know, level-headed analysis, and that's what we are good at, we go in, take a step back, look at the entire process and identify the bottlenecks and identify where are the efficiencies here for the system. The actual machines are the, that's the smallest bottleneck, the actual machine. It's still a bottleneck, but it's the smallest of all. Um, trained lab technicians are the second smallest bottleneck. Um, by far the biggest bottleneck is workflow um, to just look at the thing and optimize the workflow, which is a pure software problem. You have to basically turn everything into a digital workflow. Um, you have to automate all the reports and the numbers. And then you have to build both the process and you have to build the software tightly into the process and you have to change the process uh, so it is harmonized with the software. Um, and that's, of course, not something labs normally do. So is what you, you're doing a bolt-on to an existing lab or... Do you have your own independent lab and these cloud systems? Well, so that's also an interesting question. We always, the way we design things at Quantine is we first design the system in theory, right? That the blueprint for the system say, this is the perfect system. Uh, then we develop the cloud systems and then we plug in the components, uh, the actually uh, brick and mortar components or the machines or chemistry. Um, how we plug them in is tactical right because we don't care in the end we need the system to be perfect um, in some cases 
we use our own labs uh, here at our headquarters. Uh, in other cases, this is a regional play because you need, in order to have the same day turnaround, you need to have a local lab. Uh, so if you do it in Atlanta, you cannot have a lab in California. So then we need more labs and we are looking into acquiring labs, into starting new labs and into partnering with existing labs. And we do all of the above. Uh, that's a tactical decision. Uh, do we find a good lab that is willing to partner at reasonable prices, that is disciplined and can be quickly trained on the software? Then we do that. Or is this a state where you can quickly get a clear license? Then we do that ourselves, um, depending on the personnel and everything. Um, so, you know, all these things for us are unimportant. Uh, you have to get to your blueprint and make it work so you can deliver same day turnaround times to the patients. The same is true for if we partner with a lab, what is the, you know, what conditions does this lab have to meet? Um, and the answer is nothing other than having a clear license uh, because we can install the entire equipment and we can source uh, the assets with our partners uh, very quickly. So we have PCR machines, we can put them in, we, we have the assays to put them in. Um, so it's literally just, we need, we need bodies who are trained and we need clear licenses uh, locally. And then we can do this very quickly. Do you have uh, different levels? Um, so does a lab need to process a minimum of, you know, I don't know, at peak times, 100 samples a day or 1,000 samples a day for it to be worth it? Yes, to start a new lab and in your region, we are looking at like 2,000 samples a month. And that's kind of the critical mass to justify that. Okay. And then the data itself, um, you know, if you work with a lab in, in some state and you help them do this, does the data go onto like your systems networks and are you able to, you know, uh, pseudonymize it and query it for research or does it have to stay with the lab that you're partnering with and, you know, uh, you help them collect it and put it in the cloud, but it stays with their system and you don't have access to it? Uh, it's always on our cloud system, but it's a HIPAA compliant, clear compliant cloud system. And the, technically the laboratories, uh, the laboratories license the software. That's like the legal situation. Um, so it's their software, but we are the software provider. And so they can download that. And mostly they store it locally on top of our cloud system for clear compliance reasons. Um, but they own the data. Well, the patient owns the data. The ordering physician owns the data or has access to the data. And the laboratory has access to the data. And there's reporting requirements to the states and uh, federal government. Okay, got it. Um what about the PCR test? Is, is it just a pass-fail or is there a ramp rate of um, uh, multiplication of the sample? I mean, what, what parameters of the PCR test provided any nuance or does no one care? It's either positive well, or not positive. Well, unfortunately, most people, most lab drinkers don't care, but that's also why you see problems, right? So um, the way it works is you basically have a two-dimensional graph uh, one shows you the frequency of the laser that's being reflected from the uh, uh, from the probe, and the other on the x-axis you have the cycles. And each cycle is called an amplification cycle. So each cycle doubles the amount of um, uh, genetic genomic material uh, in the sample. And uh, all that happens per well. So you have an Eppendorf plate. You have ninety-six wells on that plate, and each in each well you have one sample. And uh, there are two probes in each well. Uh, one is the control uh, probe that just looks at uh, basically a, a random controlled piece of DNA just to make sure something is in there. Um, and the other looks for the virus. 
RNA. And uh, what is then being plotted is basically just a curve that says per cycle, how much fluorescent uh, light do I get back um, per, per piece? And the way it works is there's basically a probe in there that finds your, your target genomic sequence. And if it exists, um, it just gets multiplied. And every time it gets multiplied, uh, a fluorescent marker is being released. And the more you multiply, the more is released. And that means you get an exponential curve if something is there because you multiply, you double it with every cycle, right? And that ends up being two curves. One is the control curve that tells you, is there anything in the sample? Like, is there any DNA in the sample? Um, if not, the sample is broken. Um, and the other curve tells you, is there COVID-19 in the sample? And so if you get one curve, um, that means you, it's not detected. If you get two curves, it means it's detected. If you get no curve, it means it's invalid and you have to rerun it. Um, so you, you need oversight over these results and you have to make these decisions. They can be automated to some extent, but there is also, the problem is how do you read out these curves with the computer, right? So for example, if you have a threshold on the y-axis and you just test if that threshold was ever broken through, uh, there are certain error curves in a PCR where it's not an exponential curve, but it's a curve that goes first up and then down, which is just an error. This cannot happen. Uh, but if you just measure the threshold breakthrough, then you would say, oh, it's positive because we saw that curve. But then you look at the curve and say, no, that's a broken curve. So there's a qualitative aspect to it. Um, so you have to control your positives and check that they're actually true. And but what about uh, extrapolating backwards? Once, if you get, you know, if you see there is COVID there and you do get an exponential, why not extrapolate backwards to estimate how much virus was in the sample when you sampled it? Because that might tell you how far along the person is in terms of viral load, or maybe at least just tell you their, their current viral load at that moment. That's a good idea, but that's, that doesn't work because you don't have a good reference point. Yeah, you don't have a benchmark. You know, what if, if you took just, it can easily be if you have two patients that you take 10 times the amount of sample from one patient without knowing it, because there's no way to control, there's no quantification on that. Um, so- no, But if you're, if you're doing, let's say nasal swabs on, 100,000 people or a million people, if you kept all the data, you could see on average, you know, the, the, the sample size is going to vary a little bit, sure. Um, but you could see, like, you could look back and say, hmm, of the asymptomatic people, their viral loads tended to appear to be, you know, a lot lower than the symptomatic ones. I mean, I would think you could get some very useful data from that. Yeah, I would doubt that a little bit because there are too many it's too imprecise, the whole system, to do that. Um, because this amplification, if you have one cycle delayed for whatever reason in the chemistry. So it's like, I think it's a good idea, but it's, I would say just based on my experience with molecular diagnostics, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rely on this data. I think it's too far away from the truth. Uh, there are too many error sources to really throw this off. I think if anything, you look at other metadata that are interesting, um, that are more on a population level. I think then it's becoming interesting if you have a lot of data of patients and you repeatedly test these patients, you know, who actually gets sick? Um, how does this relate to other people? I think, I think COVID is less of a deep molecular diagnostics data problem and more of a palantir problem, like a population problem, like rates over time, who gets it, who else gets it, when do people get it, where do people get it? I think that's the interesting, that's the big, you know, interesting question. 
Well, but again, if getting it means I'm asymptomatic and nothing bothers me, who cares? If getting it means I die, well, yeah, I care a lot more. So I, I, don't know, I just think that this should be an area. I know you can't do everything, but I would think there could be things learned from this, especially if you're going to do 10 million of anything. You know, there, there could be a lot of juicy details in there. There's definitely a lot of juicy details in there. Yeah, I, that's, I believe that. Um, but right now, I mean, the urgent need is that people simply cannot get tested and that the turnaround times are terrible or the tests are bad. So I think we are really focusing on, on more like of an infrastructure play here and, and say, if you need the highest quality COVID test and you need it same day and you need it at scale, we do it. And if you wouldn't mind, can we, can we go back into the test itself and go into a few more details of, of how the test works? Um, sure. You know, because I hear PCR testing, I'm sure everyone else hears it, but the real nitty gritty of actually how it works. So, so you were saying that you'll pick what two regions of the RNA that's unique to COVID and you'll attempt to amplify, amplify both or like what literally step-by-step, uh, step, how does the test work, if you don't mind? So you, you want a control and you want a, you always, in a PCR test, you always want um, one curve or one marker for what you are looking for and one marker for some type of control. And the control is important to tell you if there's anything in the sample. And so normally what you do is you're, you're taking a random piece of DNA segment that you pick as a control. So you tell, okay, is there any material in the sample? So it's not the virus. You don't want to, the control should not be from the virus. It should be from your DNA or something else. Okay. So what um, uh, the controls, uh, they're not patient specific. Uh, you just pick like a reference, uh, a reference strand of RNA to compare. Is that what it's used? Exactly. So we all have a DNA and uh, we have many regions of our DNA need to be identical where no one has any variance on there. And you're taking one of these and you say, well, that needs to be in the sample. If that is not in the sample, there is no material from a human in the sample. And that okay, means so get the, your reference. Okay. And then literally, how, how does the amplification happen? What happens? So the PCR technology is one of the most fascinating things uh, in is one of the base technologies in molecular diagnostics. And uh, so polymerase is an enzyme. And this enzyme has a specific task. And the task is to take single-stranded DNA. So you have double-stranded DNA, the helix. So we have two strands of DNA that are attached to each other. And what polymerase does, it takes a single strand of DNA. So once you separate that, you have single strand and complements that strand. So it basically builds you the complementary strand, right? So imagine you have a ladder and you rip it apart and you have these two pieces of the ladder. The polymerase is a protein that attaches to this single-stranded ladder and just adds the other part to it. And so what it basically does is it looks like if you have a T, it adds a G, uh, an A, and if it's a C, it adds a G and so on on the other side. And so the PCR technology, what it basically does is it heats the sample up to 96 degrees, uh, which leads to a separation of the DNA into single strands. And then it cools it down slowly. And when you cool it down, at some point, the polymerase can jump into action. And then the polymerase says, oh, look, there are all these, uh, there are all these uh, single strands, so I can complete them now. Now, the trick is that um, there is something called the annealing temperature, which means if you have heated up the sample to 96 degrees, and you have separated the DNA, um, at what point does it anneal again? At what point do these two pieces automatically attach to each other again? 
And there's a certain temperature that is a function of the length of these fragments. The shorter the fragments, the faster they need. And so what people invented is they said, well, I can inject into that sample a piece or a sequence of DNA that is complementary to a region on the DNA that I find interesting. And if that happens, this little piece of DNA anneals faster than the other part of the letter because the other part is much longer. And so it anneals faster at a higher temperature. So you, you, know, you throw all these little pieces in there and the temperature is 96 degrees, you cool it down and at 70 degrees, let's say, this little piece now anneals to the, to the specific part where it fits on and then you stop cooling it down so the rest doesn't anneal. And then the polymerase sees that and the, the way polymerase works, it, it doesn't just complement a single strand. It only, it only complements a single strand if it's double-stranded at some point. So if everything is single-stranded, polymerase doesn't do anything. If polymerase says, sees, oh, it's double-stranded, but here it starts to be single-stranded, then it complements it. And so what it does allow you to do is you can basically create a primer, like a little piece of DNA, cool it down to a certain degree, and then the polymerase um, amplifies or copies that piece of DNA, but only that piece of DNA. And okay. if you do that, you know, you, you create a copy of only one piece of DNA that has your specific primer sitting on it. Um, and then you heat it up again and they cool it down again. And then you do it again because then everything gets separated again. And then the little pieces anneal again. And then the, you make another copy. But now you have four copies because you, you created two before. And so that's an ingenious process that allows you to um, take any any type of RNA or DNA and start making copies in a targeted way where you only copy something that looks exactly the way you want it to look like. And if that piece you put in there doesn't exist, nothing gets copied. But if it exists, if it's a virus sequence, uh, then it gets copied. And you know the key here is that you can make single molecules visible, because which is completely impossible normally. You can never see a single molecule. You can't even see a thousand or a million viruses. They're too small. But if you turn them into 200 billion ones, then you can see them. Well, when you're taking a sample from, uh, you know, like a, a nasal swab, let's say, there's going to be all kinds of human DNA. There's going to be viral DNA from various viruses. There's going to be all kinds of stuff in that sample. So the, the part of SARS-CoV-2 that was picked to amplify is so unique and can you can you that you can tune the uh, what the the polymerase to only amplify that, or does it does it amplify everything? And somehow somehow you're able to pick out that signal of the particular RNA that you want to see if it's there that's been amplified. Yeah, the key is you need this what's called a primer, and this primer is simply a sequence of your target, right? And so yeah, the sequence if it's not unique, you will amplify all kinds of stuff. It, you need a unique sequence. Uh, so you can only amplify something in a targeted way if you have a new unique sequence. But that's not very hard, right? Because uh, every, every living thing with a DNA, or a virus are not living, but everything with a DNA or RNA, you can identify a unique sequence, right? So the, the, the COVID-19 virus has, of course, unique elements to it that no other virus has. Otherwise, it would be the same virus. But who, and, who picked the, uh, the elements? I mean, I know that I know that you know viruses mutate. Uh, this one's an RNA virus. It, it mutates, may not mutate crazily, but how do you know the region that you're picking is the right one? That it is truly unique. That uh, there's not other viruses out there that are common that 
that have this sequence, you know, to give false positives. Um, and, and again, that it won't mutate away where it's not useful. Yeah, that's a very good question. So whenever a new virus occurs, you need to sequence the virus. They did this very quickly. Uh, that's not very hard to do. And then you need to, you see the virus sequence and then you upload it and compare to against all other virus sequ uh, sequences that we know of. And then you can just see where is a unique region. That's the step one of developing these things. Um, that's not rocket science. You just sequence the virus, you upload it compared to all the other viruses and ask the computer, is there any region that's totally unique? Yes, there are tons of regions. Okay, here are the regions. Okay, you can develop primers. And the next thing is an, a biological understanding of the virus. Uh, how does it mutate? And viruses mutate in very different ways. So some viruses, because the mutations with viruses are not random, they are actually very targeted. So some viruses mutate in a way where they have segments on their RNA and they interchange the segments. You know, it's just like building blocks. The building block itself never mutates, but the, the sequence of the building blocks constantly gets changed by the virus. Um, that's one type of mutation. Other viruses have regions that are very stable and regions where they constantly mutate in random ways. Um, so these viruses are very mean. They know exactly what they're doing, kind of. And, but they cannot randomly mutate, then they would never exist, where they would just constantly not cease to exist. So they need to mutate in very specific ways. So you find your unique sequences, and then you find out which part, you know, are these sequences and parts that mutate or not mutate? And then you try to find the ones that don't mutate, and then you have a more sustainable detection. It's not super simple, but it's like roughly, you know, you get the idea. Well, how, how many unique um, sequences of SARS-CoV-2 are used in, in PCR? Is it just one? Is it multiple it's, uniques? And does it make it better if you have more unique, you know, stacked on top of each other with multiple primers? It depends on the PCR test, but I think ours uses two. I'm, I can't even tell you the exact number. I think it's two regions that it looks for. Okay. That's better than one, but yeah, seems good. Yeah, but you don't want to have too many that it creates more false positives at some point, right? If you have too many, then it might look, you know, if you have any of these, then you have a positive. So at some point you run to a higher probability that you just randomly have another virus that looks like that. Right, that's true. Yeah. And I guess if you have more than one, you could look at the prevalence of, you know, the two compared to each other as well. It should have about the same prevalence. If one starts to amplify a lot and the other one doesn't, something strange is going on. Well, but that you can't tell because they have the same fluorescent marker because normally you only have two colors, one control and one virus. So if you have two in there, you give them the same color. So you can't even, you don't know. Oh, okay. I didn't know they didn't have the, they couldn't tell them apart. Okay. You, you can do sequencing, but that's much more complicated and expensive. So um, getting back to the rollout of the testing now, what is the current need, let's say in the United States of uh, tests per day or per month and... Do, are there efforts ramping towards this? Like, what do you think is going to play out over the next six months in terms of your testing getting out there and being used? Well, I think, you know, for us, it's really, we are growing pretty fast, but we have a tiny little share of the market, obviously, because we just started this. Um, I mean, the need is crazy. It's like enormous. And um, for a company like ours, it's more like getting the word out that we even exist because I think there are false narratives out there saying, you know, PCR tests don't work, they take too long, so they are not even an option. That's what most people think at this point. Um, like movie productions and other urgent, you know, people who need this urgent result. Um, so we see, for example, movie productions, they're all deciding to leave the United States right now, which is an enormous cost to everyone because they think oh. it's not, yeah, 
I mean, we hear this with every movie production company that's largest considering leaving um, Canada, New Zealand, Australia. And you can imagine the costs for that. Um, and, you know, we need to get the word out quickly to them. Like, guys, we are already testing at scale in LA, um, same day turnaround. That would solve the entire problem of the industry. So it's kind of funny that the only problem we have is to, to tell people, which sounds trivial. It's not very trivial. There's just a lot of noise out there. Um, you know, we need to ramp up PR. We have to tell people, no, it's just, we can't do that. We can't do it at same day turnaround time. But everything is moving at lightning speed, right? If you miss out on telling everyone that fast enough, they might just all leave um, in the movie setting. And we see these very desperate moves with antigen tests, which is just a bad idea. Um, there are certain contexts where they might make sense, but they fundamentally don't make too much sense because if you can't rely on them, what's the exact point? Um, and so, yeah, for us, it's mostly getting the word out and telling people, because it's not how laboratory people think. They think this, what we are doing is utterly impossible um, because they're not cloud systems people. Um, you know, cloud systems people, they, they would say, well, we did this in logistics and we did it, you know, in all kinds of places. Of course, it's possible to streamline a process and make it cloud compatible. But in a lab, it has never been done to this extent. And um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of a very funny, weird situation we are in that, you know, we just have to tell people and they have to wrap their head around that this is an option now and uh, look at the costs and make a decision. Well, too bad you can't uh, amplify knowledge of, uh, of quantum <laughs> as fast as you can amplify RNA. That would be very nice, yeah. So oh, that's good why I'm, I'm also talking to you right now about these things. I think we just have to get the word out. And uh, yeah, and when I see all the things that are happening in COVID are just so breathtakingly stupid, some of them, like these decisions are wrong. You know, why do you go for anti antigen tests? I think it's a lot of politicians who I don't even want to blame, but they want a solution. It sounds so nice for them. It's like, oh yeah, maybe now we can test everyone. But it's low resolution thinking. And the, of course, the medical professions are not uh, agreeing. Um, do, you, uh, do, you, do you think there's, you know, it seems like in certain areas they want to test people every day or every few days. Do you think that's a, a good idea or bad or why? It all depends, you know, what we are talking about. If you have a movie set um, where you hang out in close vicinity to each other every day, uh, yeah, you should test three times a week. Um, if you have a manufacturing uh, facility where people have to be in you know close contact and cannot socially distance you should probably test three times a week um if you socially distance and or don't even have to go to the office then you don't need to get tested at as much so it's it's all a risk assessment you know uh depending on the context but every time you want to have dense crowds i definitely would recommend to get everyone tested because it's a, it's a little reckless to not test them so if this was fast enough um, that would allow, uh, you know, a negative test being a requirement for entry to uh, to work or to an event or those kinds of things. Or exactly. We exactly we have also some travel requirements where you need to show a test that within seventy two hours uh, that was done within seventy two hours. So you can imagine it needs to be done within seventy two hours, but you also need the results. If you need forty eight hours for the results, you have basically twenty four hours to travel and then you're screwed. So you need same-day results in order to make many of these things work. Okay, makes sense. Well, also, Joe, I, mean, I mean, imagine you, you test someone and they are positive and you get the results back three days later and in these three days, he's just running around. I mean, that's just not very smart. No, that's true. Yeah. Well, Joe, 
I'm glad you came back. You know, like you said, you're very innovative. I, I love having you as a guest. It's great. So um, I'm going to get the word out about this for you by you know, getting this podcast out there. Um, what do you want people to know that are listening? If they, you know, obviously it sounds like the movie business would be great. Um, what other kinds of organizations or companies or people um, that listen to this should uh, should contact Quan Jin and, and find out about uh, working with you? Well, anyone who is looking for COVID uh, PCR, so high accuracy solutions that are very fast turnaround, um, that can be governments, of course, it can be hardware and can be manufacturing. We have logistics companies, uh, movie, of course. Um, I think there are many others too, retail organizations, events. Uh, the NFL is a big topic uh, where we know that they're considering canceling the season, all kinds of things. Uh, college football. So I think yeah, whoever is exposed to any kind of discussion, um, it's just would yeah, it would be great to get the word out that we can we can now deliver same day PCR COVID results to a nearly one hundred percent accuracy. Okay, very good. So Joe Bakti, uh, head of Quant Gene, thanks for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it. Awesome, thanks a lot. I really always a pleasure to be on your podcast, Richard, and uh, thanks for doing that. If you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.